Welcome to another episode of Resilient with Jennifer Chambers. Um, I have a caveat before we begin this episode. It feels like I have often had a caveat. I'm still working through some technical difficulties. So I'm actually recording um, this episode and the next couple on the mobile version of Anchor. I'm pleasantly surprised. It is so easy to use. I'm not doing this as an advertisement. I'm just sharing because sometimes you have to pivot. You've got to work with what you've got, right? So I'm, I'm making the best of it because I still want to get the podcast out to you. I've been so happy with the response. You guys have been incredible. I have so many interviews set up for the next couple of weeks and couple of months. We've got performers, we have writers, musicians, all different kinds of artists and people from all walks of life who are willing to share their stories. And then we can can talk to them and, and hear about, about the things that they're going through and about their lives because we've all got really incredible stories and I want this podcast to be a place for us to hear them and for us to tell them. I very much appreciate your support. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Resilient Podcast with Jennifer Chambers. On this show, we share stories of people being resilient in times of strife, and those stories can take a lot of different forms. Today's topic is going to get real, real fast. We're talking about the dreaded diagnosis. Now make sure you're comfortable. Sit down with a nice cup of something warm, and let's get into it. My personal experience with the word and the experience of having a diagnosis, per se, makes it almost the dirtiest of dirty words. I can't tell you the number of doctors who have basically thrown up their hands when presented by my super strange symptoms. All I ever wanted was pretty simple, a name for what was wrong with me. All right, that's not entirely true. I wanted mostly not to be in pain, (laughs) closely seconded by just being seen as someone who is normal, whatever that is. I wanted to be just like everyone else, with problems that don't require multiple specialists to determine. Well, that's fair. It's not very realistic, and I can see that now. My symptoms started presenting themselves when I was about 12 years old. Now, bear in mind, any of my Genesis stories are really by their nature pretty skewed. Because of my brain injury at 15, all of the information I have is told to me by others. So I am told that one summer day when I was 12, our family went to the lake to swim at the boat dock of a friend's. Now, when we say lake, it's a bit of a stretch. Some folks call our reservoir, which was built with the Corps of Engineers labor in 1942, here in my section of Western Oregon, more of a large ditch. The water's pretty brown when it gets stirred up, I have to admit. So understandably, when I left the water that day and complained about not being able to see anything, anything but brown, like a brown fog out of my left eye, everyone thought, oh sure, it's mud, or maybe it's motor oil from a boat. But the brownness wouldn't go away. So I was taken to an ophthalmologist who determined it was actually my eye bleeding from the inside. And the brown film that I was looking through was actually a scab. Ew, sorry, I know that's gross. (laughs) 
In order to bring down the swelling and the bleeding from what they suspected was a disease called uveitis, they gave me a shot of cortisone in my eye. Now, of course, I don't remember it, but there is really no better way to instantly stop your kid from whining about, you know, some small issue or injury than to say, hey, is it worse than a needle in your eye? No? Well then, you're fine. Of course, I try not to minimize my children's injuries, but it's a good weapon to haul out over a paper cut or imaginary illness of some type. And my kids always laugh. Unfortunately, the shot they gave me, it caused my eye to develop glaucoma. Of course, there's drops for that, and eventually the uveitis also went away. But here's the thing, nobody knew what caused the episode. It would come back, and I would have red, puffy eyes, there would be pain, light sensitivity, and a weird yellowish discharge that came out, super gross. I thought I kept getting pink eye, but my massive courses of drops made it go away after a week or so. Now, in my teens, my symptoms were pretty much interrupted by my brain injury. It was a strange synchronicity of fate, if, if, you, could, if you believe in fate. <laughs> my parents were told that if the ER doctors were to use the traditional method for bringing down brain swelling at that time, which was steroids, they were afraid because of my previous reaction to the shot in my eyeball, which actually was steroids, that I would go blind. My parents were actually on the verge of saying they'd try anything when a mysterious doctor with an experimental drug came in with an alternative treatment, which would eventually bring down the swelling and save my life. It sounds pretty fantastic, but it's true. The redness in my eye would come and go throughout the years. It was treated with drops, mostly. Um, I would take some courses of antibiotics when it was bad enough. But no one knew exactly what caused it. I went to um, lots of different doctors who eventually diagnosed it as, of course, it was uveitis, but it was something that presented as uveitis. It was an autoimmune disease of some type, but no one really knew exactly what happened or why it started. Now, by the time I was about 25, my husband and I had... We left our two children, we had two then, with a sitter, and we went to, it feels like a big momentous occasion, we went to some concert at the university near our house. We like to go to concerts a lot, and a few songs in, my mouth started to swell up. I always like to call it all the look of Botox, but none of the benefits. It felt so grotesque. My lips were enormous. My mouth started to swell, and then it started to split as it got bigger and bigger. It wasn't super fast, but it was enough that it was alarming. So we went home. I took large amounts of ibuprofen to bring down the swelling for that. But then that evening, my right forearm started to swell. My joints started to ache. Everything started on the right side. It went from the small joints to the large ones. It was strange in that the, the pain faded laterally side to side. It was so odd. I was given... Referrals to doctors, rheumatologists, physical therapists. I went to see a naturopath. I took all kinds of courses of medicines that had terrible side effects. They put me back on steroids, uh, finding out that it was only one particular type that I was reacting to. So then, of course, um, I had reactions to steroids. My body, as a part of the disease, began to show a lace-like rash. 
At first, this rash appeared only when I was cold or when I was at the beginning of an episode. And um, an episode is how they, they termed it. Everything that I had presented very much like rheumatoid arthritis without being rheumatoid arthritis. They also thought that I had ankylosing spondylitis for a while. Um, now, I think that's been ruled out, but I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> but that lace-like rash, at first it only happened when I was cold. And now it's pretty much permanent. It's interesting. I don't tan. I'm pretty, pretty darn white. So in the summertime, I'm more like white and red. <laughs> I also developed Raynaud's syndrome. Raynaud's syndrome is, is, a, is a disease where your fingers and toes get very blue with cold. Uh, and then as they warm up, they get really bright red or white because of blood restriction to your fingers and toes. So eventually this disease, whatever it was, made not just my joints, but my muscles fatigued and so painfully that I couldn't even lift my trunk out of bed when I would be in the middle of a terribly bad episode. Um, it happened for quite a while. I was pretty despondent. There wasn't much that I could do except suffer through my episodes. They would last for about a week at a time, as I said, and, and eventually they started getting in closer and closer. Now, I tried to pinpoint on my own the, the different kinds of things that would trigger it and make it start. I determined that um, one of the things was overdoing it, which makes sense. When I, over, when I overdid it, I would often get really sick the next day or the next week. Uh, one of the things I did was to, um, just as a trial, I talked to a doctor and they didn't have any empirical evidence, but they thought, you know, go ahead, stop eating, um, let's try gluten first to see if it had any bearing on things. And surprisingly, it did. I haven't eaten gluten for 10 years. Now, a caveat here, this is only my experience. This is not to be taken as medical advice. This isn't for anyone else. If, if this is helpful to you, that's great. But I very much dislike being told, this oil, this eating plan, this exercise, this medicine will cure anything that's wrong with you. And I already do yoga, so <laughs> please don't presume to tell me or anyone else how to treat their health, their own health. Everyone's in charge of their own stuff. <laughs> but having said that, not eating gluten really does help me. And gluten is definitely, very definitely one of my triggers. It's funny, I've been accidentally glutened uh, a couple times by weird stuff. Salad dressing's a big one, it's so strange. I, I don't know why people would put wheat in salad dressing, but they do. <laughs> but uh, another big one I pinpointed was stress. I've been in the urgent care more Thanksgivings and Christmases than I can remember because I would have an acute attack about that time. It seems particularly cruel, really, to, to have that at, at happy times if you're right. It doesn't have to be bad stress. It's just stress. Stress is in, as in something different or big changes into my routine. Uh, unfortunately, as a person with a brain injury, very much more so at the beginning of my, of my recovery process, but routine is very important for me. It helps quite a bit. So many doctors later had almost given up trying I can't tolerate opioid pain medications, and I don't like them anyway. I didn't know what to do. I wanted to be around to see my kids grow up. I was having less and less mobility. I have a cane. I have, um, I've had walkers. Um, and, and oftentimes when I was sick, I would just literally be in my bed for a week at a time. It did seem particularly cruel to come back from something like brain injury and be so incredibly lucky and then be felled 
by an invisible illness where my body pretty much just hates me. <laughs> so one day I was fooling around on the internet and I was looking for different um, solutions and different, not miracle cures, but you know, different things that could maybe help me. And um, I saw that I could apply to be in a study at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. For those of you who don't know, it's the largest research facility facility in the United States. This is, it's a government facility. So I'm actually pretty used to research hospitals. I can tell you, and shout out to anybody else who has this s stupid honor, <laughs> doctors seriously love you when you're a mystery. They're always glad to see you. So I applied to this study, and I kind of got my hopes up. We've, we had honestly been all around the country. I live on the West Coast, and we had been back and forth all over looking to hospitals, looking for some sort of solution. Then I got an email saying that I didn't actually fit the criteria for their study. Up and then down. About three months later, though, they called back. Could I come out to the NIH in Bethesda and get testing? Heck yes, I could. I went out several times a year after that first visit. It's funny, I had a nurse ask me, when are you going to stop? Do you have to have a name for what you have? Or would you rather have help? I mean, hands down, help, right? I want no pain. I want to be able to live normally. I don't have a diagnosis per se. What I have, they've determined over several years and lots of genetic testing. I actually just had another round done. It's similar to, but not exactly, something called TRAPS or a fever disorder. Um, I forgot to say, another one of my fun... Uh, disease pinpoints is a very high fever. Now, I, I generally run pretty low, but um, uh, when I was a baby, I just actually explained this to my daughter the other day. When I was a baby, I had a fever that was so high, I have little white buds on my two front teeth. Apparently, that's common with little kids as your teeth are developing if you have a high enough fever, and they've never gone away. I've had my teeth bleached. It does, I mean, I could get veneers, but I don't care. It's not important that I have a real diagnosis. At one point they told me, hey, maybe we'll name it after you, whatever you have, because I guess six other people in the world have it. Maybe more now. I haven't been to Bethesda for a year or two. But the most important thing for me is that I now have medication that helps. I often joke about it. The medication I have is comes from one, <laughs> literally, a government pharmacy in Denver, Oh, I'm sorry, not Denver, Detroit. In Detroit, of all places. It feels very Scooby-Doo, the whole thing. <laughs> I get this crazy secret medicine from the government. <laughs> it's not secret. Um, but I, I get a medicine that I inject once or twice a day. And it's honestly given me back my life. I don't want to, to put it too fine a point on it. But before I had this, I, I, I didn't have a good quality of life. I might not be the best soccer mom out there, but I could be there. I can coach the team. I can bring the snacks. I can function. It's been very humbling. Um, at, at first, when I had come back from my brain injury, and, and I do have some physical ailments left over from that, I broke my hip and my shoulder as well at the time, and, um, and they don't always work exactly. And I have balance issues, things like that. So often I have, I have had to have different mobility devices. 
And it's not that I thought I was too good for anything, but boy, when I had to use a cane all the time and start thinking about using a walker all the time, it was really hard. And I think it's okay to say that it's hard. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing, but it's okay that it's hard. And I still do. And God, I'm so grateful that I can. It's interesting, your perspective, right? I'm really grateful that I can do that now. I'm, thank goodness. I'm so happy that I'm able to use that (laughs) whenever I need it. That's the point. It's, it's, it's a mobility device, right? It's to help you. And I don't have to have it all the time, but I'm so grateful that using something like that, plus my medication, helps me be able to live my life. It's the best gift of my whole life, apart from my husband and family. So, what's your diagnosis story? Do you want to share? Do you have a diagnosis? Are you looking for one? If you'd like to be interviewed, write me at resilientpodcastmail at gmail.com. I have several stories and interviews lined up for the coming weeks. I've had some super bad um, mechanical failures on my end. Of course, you start a podcast and then everything breaks. (laughs) Just very funny. But thanks for listening. And I have some wins for the week that I wanted to share. I'm in a business class right now. I'm loving working with the pod of women I've been assigned to. They're so helpful and wonderful. And for um, my books of the week, I always like to share the books that I'm reading of the week. I really like mysteries, so I, I read two cozy mysteries this week, Assaulted Caramel by Amanda Flower and Devonshire Scream by Laura Childs. I really, honestly, I can't get enough mysteries that have recipes. It's the perfect combination for me. Then I also was reading a more traditional mystery, A Bitter Feast by Deborah Crombie. And then for nonfiction, I have these two books that I am crazy about. Very different, very, very intense. Uh, The first book that was nonfiction that I read is called The Second Chance Club, Hardship and Hope After Prison by Jason Hardy. It's absolutely, it's so, so incredible. It's compelling. Uh, The man who wrote the story, he now is an FBI agent, which is interesting in and of itself. But he started work and wrote the book about being a uh, parole officer in the New Orleans district. It's fascinating. It's an eye on a part of the country that I know nothing about and, and want to know much more of, especially New Orleans as it is today. Very, very interesting and hopeful for humanity. It's, you know, it's it's not always pretty, but very worth your time. I I really recommend it. And then I um I, I read kind of a fun one. I read Flea, a memoir or Flea's memoir called Acid for the Children. Flea, of course, is the bass player for Red Hot Chili Peppers. It's extremely intense. There's a lot of um, graphic depictions. There's, he doesn't shy away from his high partying lifestyle as one before and during his, his life as a red hot chili pepper. But he also has a lot of insights about his life. I, I recommend that one too. Like I say, very different, very, very different, but super fascinating. I hope you have a wonderful week. Please subscribe and review if you can, and follow me at Resilient Podcast Network on Instagram for a daily dose of inspiration and realness. Have a great week.
Hi, please leave a message for the Resilient Podcast with Jennifer Chambers. I'd love to hear your story, and I'll get back to you about using it on the air as soon as possible. Thank you.